Hello, and welcome to episode three of the Epics Podcast. My name is Alex Waite, and I'm so excited for this guest today. Teresa Mitchell is joining me on this episode, and I just thought she was a complete delight to have on. She's the executive producer of an upcoming documentary, Life After Loss, which is being created to bring light and truth to the struggles that are faced by black and brown women as they quietly suffer through miscarriage, infant loss, and infertility. Now, after suffering three miscarriages herself, Teresa finally had her rainbow baby. Through these experiences, she felt alone and isolated, thinking that her journey was one that very few could understand. She came to find out this is actually all too common of a story among black and brown women. And she used her recovering and healing to find her voice and advocate for these women by making this documentary. She so kindly shared her story with me and started such an important conversation about the disparity of care that black and brown women experience in our healthcare system, as well as what she believes we can do to make a difference moving forward. I was so moved by Teresa and her dedication to validating the feelings and experiences of so many of these women that are all too easily dismissed. It's a topic that I knew very little about and was very grateful for her sharing her story. Her mission to save as many babies and mothers from experiencing an inequitable level of care is one that we all need to learn more about and get behind. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Here's Teresa. Well, Teresa, thank you so much for, for joining me again today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely. For those of you listening, uh, we had scheduled this earlier, but uh, had technical difficulties. And Teresa has been so kind to come back and talk to me another day. Thank you so much, Teresa. Oh, you're truly welcome. Thanks for accommodating me. Absolutely. My pleasure. Could you please describe yourself and the environment that you're in for the people listening on a podcast today? Hi, I am um, a light skinned female, Black. I am residing right now in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. I'm in my makeshift office um, at home in Myrtle Beach. And what what do you want everyone to know about you? That I am a go-getter. I'm a hustler. I am a mom. I'm a wife. I am executive producer of um, my latest documentary called Life After Loss. I am an entrepreneur. And I'm just a great person. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. There's a lot of hats that you're wearing there. Yes, yes. And I'm trying to figure out which one I'm having on today. <laughs> well, and the, I know, you know, from being married to my wife, the mom hat also has multiple hats on it as well. So you're clearly a very talented and skilled individual to have oh, all those things you. going on. Yes, thank you. Your wife, too. Oh, Ooh, we are strong. I had to fight with my two-year-old just to help her put on one pair of socks. So oh, yeah, socks struggling. are impossible. That's you know, for people <laughs> who don't have kids, that's a lot harder than it sounds. Exactly. She wanted to do it herself. She got the first mm. one on, but the second one was giving her a hard time. She then she fell out. It, yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> We've transitioned to just sandals for the rest of the summer because there's no socks involved. That's what I had to do. I had to take the other uh, sock off and just put sandals on because I couldn't do it. <laughs> Absolutely. That's right. That's why it takes us so long to get out of the house. Exactly. I'm never on time, but today I was pushing it, but I made it. <laughs> Perfect. You were right on time, I think. Anyways, you, you grew up in Queens, New York. Is that right? Yes. I grew up in Queens, New York uh, with my mom, being a single mom, and my older sister. Wonderful. And what was that like growing up there? Growing up there was uh, pretty, I mean, my mom made it the best way she can. 
Um, she made it a great childhood. I have no complaints about childhood, but we did live in Queens, which was in that time was, you know, in the eighties growing up, it was the crack epidemic. It was, you know, violence out there, but it was a close knit community, um, especially with my neighbors and my family. So all that traumatic things that was happening back then, I didn't really get to see it, but I, I seen it. I don't know mm-hmm. if you understand what I mean. Like I seen the environment we was in, but I didn't get to see like the roughness of it. But growing up there was um, inspired me to who I am now. Like I'm a go-getter. I am a motivator. Living in New York was the best thing I think I can possibly say because I was raised in a diverse community mm-hmm. where I seen um, Hispanics and Black and Africans and Iranians and Russians. So we all lived in one community. So it was cool seeing that different cultures, eating different foods. I had my next door neighbor, she was Jewish. So um, she was amazing. Like she cooked, you know, told us about her tradition and stuff like that. So my childhood was pretty good growing up in Queens. And you were saying, you know, how great it was that it was so diverse. What did you what did you learn from growing up within that diversity that you still kind of take with you every day now? Treat people the way you want them to be treated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they say, you know, you, you see color, but I see people who, who they are. I don't see that you are a, a white woman or a white man or I see you as who you are. And then I will respect you for who you are. That's what I instilled now because uh, living out here in Myrtle Beach, you don't really see that diversity out here. Mm. But when you do, you you be like, okay, yes, they have an Asian restaurant. I'm going. Let's let's go try some Thai food. You know, so things like that is really really instilled in me that we are all human, respect each other, love each other. I think about that sometimes. You know, I grew up in suburbia, Colorado. You know, it's about suburbs of Denver where. You know, my graduating class out of 400 had like five black kids in it. And so feeling like I need to work extra hard to get into those situations of diversity. And that can be challenging sometimes. And mm-hmm. so and I hear your story about growing up in that. And, you know, it just furthers, I think, our, for me, at least the need to, to seek that out. I think that's so important. Yeah, I think it's important for everybody, especially for my mom. She wanted us to see mm-hmm different cultures, wanted us to be around different people and different cultures, because everybody, you know, we might look the same, but we are different in culture. But she also instilled in me to understand that we might not come from the same cloth, but we bleed the same blood. We go to the bathroom like everybody else. We're human. But for me, for a Black woman, it's going to be 10 times much harder for me to exist in a society because we are looked down at, we're the first thing they'd be like, oh, you're angry because you're voicing your opinion. So we are mm-hmm. mad black woman. So that was the one that she tried to tell us growing up is that you're strong, no matter what anybody tell you, no matter what anybody thinks of you, you are who you are and love who you are. Do you feel like that was harder or easier for you to develop that sense of self and individuality growing up within that diversity? I think it was harder because I wanted to find my place. So I didn't know, you know, now that I'm grow older now, it's like, okay, I know who I am. I found my place. But younger, growing up, you heard all the mean things from kids because kids are mean. Kids are mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, even you, if you was living in the hood, 
or living across the street from the hood, you still in the hood. That's how they felt. Um, mm-hmm. If you if your mom didn't have if you didn't have both parents, they will. Oh, well, you don't have both parents. You you are a bastard child or you was living off of food stamps and they looked at you because you didn't have no income. And I'm like, man, it was, it was rough. It wasn't easy. You know, I'm a light skinned black woman, but I had my challenges. A lot of dark skinned females didn't like me. Some, a lot of light skinned females didn't like me because I didn't fit in a group or they characteristics of who I supposed to be. So now that I'm grown, I know my place. I know who I am. I'm, I'm accepting who I am. But childhood, no. Mm-mm. And was it like you didn't feel like you fit in anywhere? Because you're talking about being a light-skinned Black woman. So some of these other other kids who were darker-skinned than you, you're saying that you didn't quite fit in their group. And then I I would guess you probably didn't fit in, you know, like a, a white person's group necessarily or mm-hmm. some of these other groups. So, so did you feel really isolated in that? Yeah, growing up, I had to stick with the, the Hispanic kids because they thought I was Hispanic. They thought mm-hmm. I was Dominican. I didn't speak no Spanish. <laughs> so I had to hang out with them. But it was okay, you know, growing up because I got to learn their culture, learn a little bit of uh, Spanish. But other than that, it was it was hard to fit into that bubble and that group setting for me. Um, I tended to be a loner, but it wasn't bad because I only had like two good friends. But now looking back, I was like, damn, kids was hard, you know, on me for wearing glasses or having braces, you know, <laughs> being mm-hmm. light-skinned and short. It, it was it was rough. But now, as an adult, I can see why, you know, I was put in this place because I'm, I'm now I'm more humble and accepted to knowing everybody else of just seeing who you are as an individual instead of just seeing you as, oh, you come from a poor class. No, even if you come from a high class, I'm still going to love you the way mm-hmm. I want you to love me. And your daughter's two, right? Yeah. So how do those experiences, particularly like feeling isolated, you know, and trying to discover yourself when you were growing up, how does that inform how you're parenting her now? Now she is, she is a traveling kid now. Because uh, growing up, I my mom had us every summer traveling somewhere. So she right now is diverse in whole different kind of cultures like her father's from Grenada so he's from the islands so he's around she's around his family and then my family is from the Caribbean of St. Croix um but we also have people from Brazil in my family we got people from different parts of the island like um Anguilla and um, St. Kitts and then my group of friends are diverse well you know I have white, Hispanic, uh, Italian, Russian, like we, so she sees the different cultures. But for me, I want her to find her place because she's 22 now. So I want her to know that she's beautiful every day. I want her to know that even if she does have friends or two friends or whatever, for her, it's going to be 10 times harder because she's black and she's a female. Mm -hmm. But I want her to know that no matter what she does or what she don't do, we're going to love her. We're going to aspire her. and We're going to make sure she is able to grasp who she is and for her roots to now, to present. I feel like a lot of times it seems strange to be 
talking like this about a two-year-old, but I feel like for me at least, and for us, we were thinking about this stuff immediately because we want to be so intentional the entire time. And obviously a lot of this might not be impacting her yet, but you you never know when she's going to look back and think, oh yeah, mom did that. Mom and dad did that. Anyway, so that was just a thought I had about parenting that way and how hard that is. And, yeah, because uh, for, for me, being pregnant with her, I was already scared for her. Mm-hmm. Um, for her every day. Like I pray harder for her than for myself mm-hmm. um, because she's going to, she might not see it, but she's going to feel it. She's going to feel that racism. She's going to feel that awkwardness of walking into room and not owning the room. She's going to feel that her presence is not felt because she's black. She's going to feel like she's rejected or getting a low pay income because she's black. So me trying to protect her and try to put her in a bubble is like, oh man, you know, she's only two. But I know I'm going to have to have this talk with her when she gets a little older so she can understand. And, you know, for black people, we have to have that communication and that talk Mm -hmm. with our kids earlier uh, than, you know, whites and other people because it's much harder for us to even stand for what we believe in and what we feel and our, this, our existence, you know, it's, 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 it's impossible. Like, you know, we, we come into this world, we have a label against us. We have everything that's fighting against us automatically. As soon as we are, we just came in, you know, take our first breath. So now for her, it's just like, I want her to have the best childhood, but that I want her to shelter her in the fact that she doesn't know who she is or have that conversation with her to let her know that she's going to feel this certain kind of way and this is how you handle it. And it's sad to say that I have to do that, but my mom had to have a talk with us, you know, so we have to have the same conversations with her. And growing up, when do you remember first experiencing that sort of discrimination and then specifically tying it or acknowledging that it was because of your skin color? Do you remember how, how old you were? I think I was eight and my sister was going to, no, I was seven. My sister was going to junior high school. We lived in Queens. She got accepted to a school in, um, yeah, I forgot the, I think it was Whitestone type of area, but it was like a white neighborhood. She got accepted mm-hmm. to that junior high school. And then me and my mom waited for her at the bus stop for the bus to come and pick her up. Bus never came. So my mom had to drop, get us in the car, drive her to the school. And we see a whole group of black people outside and they would not let black students into that school. They told my sister that she doesn't belong there because she's black. They called us the N-word. They Mm. did all kinds of stuff just, and I'm like, this is in like 1996. Mm -hmm. Like who does this? (laughs) You know, I'd never seen something like that. You know, I heard of it, but I'd never seen it. And being done to my sister was like, wow. And my mom had to have a conversation with us. Like she literally had to put us in a car and show us and tell us, this is what society looks at y'all because you're black. And it was like, damn, we doesn't only live around the corner, but I was lying from in that community didn't mix well. So now my sister going to that school was like, she's not accepted because she's black. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like not even that long ago. You said 96. It feels like we should have been farther along by then. But then I imagine, you know, in four years when your daughter is six, if you have to have that same conversation, how different do you think that conversation will be from the one your mom had with you? 
I don't think it's gonna be different. I think it's gonna be the same. Mm-hmm. And it's sad to say because you know we in 2021. Mm-hmm. So turn six is like, okay, we're gonna be ahead of the time, but we still gonna have that tough conversation with her. We still gonna have that 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 notion where she won't understand it, but she'll see it. And then she has to determine which, you know, what she feels. And it's sad. And it, it it hurts me to the core because I seen my girlfriend talk to her daughter when George Floyd died. Mm. And she posted it on Facebook and it made me cry because she had to have that tough conversation with her eight-year-old in 2020. So just imagine when my daughter turns six, I still have to have that tough conversation with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 20, 2025, 2020, you know, 96, all the same conversation. I'm sure it's similar to a conversation that happened 20 years before that. My mom had to talk. My dad had to talk. Uh, mm. uh, you know, and they was different in a different time. My grandmother even had to talk. My grandfather. So just imagine this is generations of generations of having that kind of tough conversation with your children. Yeah, that sounds so difficult. I can't imagine what that's like. Obviously, with me talking to my boys, it's it's a different conversation entirely because that they'll be completely oblivious. Yeah. Likely. Hopefully not. Hopefully we prepare them enough for that. But um, you got a strong will, and I think you will instill this in your children. Where you know, even though we are in a different bubble or a different bracket, we still are the same. So you probably will Mm -hmm. have that conversation with them, but it won't be like you know as as strong as what ours is. Right. I want to go back a little bit to you know talking about. Uh, when you wanted to have kids and when you were starting to get pregnant. Can you tell me a little bit about that journey? Sure. Um, In 2011, um, I was pregnant. First time being pregnant, scared, nervous, didn't know what to do. I found out when I was eight weeks pregnant and um, I was super nervous. I didn't know what to do. I was just like, oh, I'm a kid. Like, I want to live my life. But I sat down and I was like, okay, I'm going to have this baby. You know, let's see what what the cards play. So I went to the doctor like normal. Everything checked out fine until I hit 15 weeks. 14 weeks, I kept complaining to my doctor that I'm feeling low pressure in my abdominal area. And he kept telling me, oh, it's okay. You're fine. You're pregnant. You know, you're going to feel discomfort. And I'm like, this is not this comfort. I know what discomfort is and this is not it. So he was like, oh, well, we check you next week. No, we check you in two weeks. So the next week I turned 15 weeks and something wasn't right. I woke up, went as normal, ate breakfast, did what I had to do and lay down. And I heard a pop and water just gushing out. Mm. I didn't know what was going on. I was scared. I was nervous. I called my mom and she was like, oh my God, you're having a miscarriage. And it didn't hit me until when she said it, it was like, oh, you whatever, mom. Until I called my sister. Called my sister and my sister was like, Teresa, take a deep breath. You're having a miscarriage. And I'm like, oh my God, how is this? Why is this happening to me? Why is this hitting me so hard that I can't even relate to it? Until I got to the hospital, they told me I had, they couldn't hear a heartbeat. I was having a miscarriage. The doctor then informed me that it could be two things hormones, hormone cells that didn't, you know, mix well, or an incompetent cervix. 
So me, young, is like, what do you mean? Can we fix it? Like, how do we fix this situation? And he said, the only time we can fix something is if you get pregnant again. And I'm like, why? Why do we have to wait till I get pregnant again? So it took me two years from there to get pregnant again. Um, I was depressed. I didn't know what to do. I was ashamed. I felt a lot of guilt. I thought it was my fault. I thought everything that I did was my fault. Um, so I was in a deep depression at that time. So when I seeked help, I didn't get to try to seek help like that. Um, I went to a support group. And when I went to the support group, it wasn't nobody that looked like me. Mm. It was uh, white families telling their stories. And I, I felt like I was in a room with a group of people, but I just felt like I was alone. And so one lady came to me and was like, I see that you look like you're struggling. If you just want to talk to me, that's fine. Just tell me your story. Told her my story. And she just got up and just gave me a hug. And I think that's what only thing I needed was somebody just to listen to me and be present. And when that happened, I just released it a whole lot of built up emotions and uh, frustrations and everything, the guilt, the shame that tied to it. So after that, I seek therapy, finally got therapy, and then I got pregnant again. Now, this was my excited time. I was did my research. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to get me a trans a vaginal saclage just because if I do have an incompetent cervix. My doctor, I expressed to my doctor that I wanted to do the transvaginal saclage. He told me he doesn't think I need it. You'll be okay. Um, you were 14 weeks. I don't think anything's going to happen to you. You're fine. He kept dismissing me. Just kept dismissing me. Is this the same doctor from the first pregnancy? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And, I, and I knew I should have went to another doctor, but you know, me young was like, okay. So then I finally, when I got the courage, I looked for um, a high risk doctor and um, I finally got in contact with him. I told him my story. He told me to schedule an appointment with him Thursday. Monday was the day I talked to him on the phone. I later hanged up with him, called his office, scheduled an appointment for Thursday. Tuesday, I lost the baby. Mm. I was leaking. I was feeling discomfort. And I was scared. I was nervous. I didn't know what to do. And I was like, oh, my God. Not again. Not again. Why is nobody listening to me? Why is nobody understanding my pain? And nobody understanding this is what I'm going through. Like I try to seek help, but you're not helping me. So I lost the baby at 18 weeks. That's when I was like, I couldn't do this no more. I'm done. I felt like the world was effed up. I felt like if I told you this is what's happening and you still didn't have me help me, what was else I was supposed to do? Like, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. I'm, I'm not nothing. And I wanted to commit suicide. I had thoughts of killing myself because I felt like I wasn't worthy of being a mother. Mm. Then I had to bury my child. I had mm. to go to the funeral home by myself, pick out a little urn to cremate my child. That was the most painful situation I ever been through. Who 
planning a funeral for a baby at 18. And I thought I was the only one that was doing this. Like, I just felt like I was in this world by myself. I had to name him. I had to pick out an urn. I had to make these arrangements and figure out if he's coming to my house or if I want to do a ceremony at the gravesite and spread his ashes around. And I'm like, this is can't be right. This can't be like, this can't be the way that you tell somebody you have these options for your child to be buried. And at that point, I was like, oh, no, this is this. This can't be. I can't bring a baby in this world in a box because that's not what it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to bring a healthy baby into this world to make sure that he or she is good and raise them to the best of my ability. I seek therapy. It took a while because they didn't have therapists in the time to uh, pick me up. So I had like a whole bunch of thoughts in my mind. My mom kept telling me to pray about it. My family kept telling me to pray about it. People kept coming up to me and saying, um, it was meant to be. I didn't want to hear that. Like, why would you tell somebody it was meant to be? Like, who says this? Then I had a good friend of mine was like, well, that's what you get for going to a Medicaid doctor. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, I, these things that I know now that people didn't know what to say. So they just said anything. And I think that's the worst thing to do when a person is breathing or feeling a certain kind of way, just be quiet. Because nothing you can say is going to help them feel better. At that point, it was in 2014 when I lost my son. I was like, I'm not doing this no more. The devil was a lie. I'm not doing this no more. Not doing it just don't make no sense. Until I started seeking therapy. And when I started going to my therapist and seeing a psychiatrist, um, my therapist told me, try again. What's the worst thing that can happen? And I'm like, lost. <laughs> That's the worst thing I haven't lost. Like, I don't want to do this again. And she was like, just sit on it, evaluate it, and see if it's going to happen. I said, okay. So 2016, I wasn't planning on having a baby, but I found that I was pregnant. And this time I did my research. This time I knew what doctor I was going to. I knew I needed to transvaginal supplies. Like I advocated for myself for this third pregnancy. I got the best doctors. I even flew to New York to make sure that I get care in New York City instead of doing it in Florida because I was originally in Florida from 2010 to 2016. In 2016, I went to New York, got the best care, got the best doctors. Everything was good. They did the transvaginal saclage at 13 weeks. They did it at 13 weeks. So everything was smooth. I was going to my doctor's appointment every week. Everything was good until 19 weeks. Mm. 19 weeks, they found an infection that was leading up into my uterus, into the uh, to placenta, and will either harm myself and the baby. And if it harms the baby, then the baby can eventually be born with weak immune system, limbs, all kinds of stuff. I was like, oh my God, what do I did wrong? Like, not again. So they told me I had two options. One, I could do another transvaginal supplies to see if the infection wouldn't reach up there. Or two, I had to have a spread of abortion. I'm like, here we go again. I have to make these tough decisions about my baby. So I did a second trans 
abdominal, um, transvaginal supplage. And they kept me in there for two days just to monitor me. And it didn't work. Uh, so they told me that second procedure was not successful. So now we have to have a Socratic abortion. My world then was over. I just felt like I was like, I did everything you told me to do. And now here we go again, third pregnancy gone. I locked myself in a bubble, had the procedure, held my baby in my arms. And now I have to plan another funeral for this child. And I believe for me, this was the breaking point that I was just mad at the world. I was mad at society. I was mad at my family. I was mad at my boyfriend. I was mad. I was even mad at my dog and my dog didn't even do nothing to me. And I said, I can't live like that. And it took me like six months just to get my head out of that situation. But I didn't know how. I didn't know if I should just sit there and continue listening to people telling me it was meant to be, pray about it. It happens to the best of us. You are strong. And I'm like, I'm not strong. I feel like I'm weak. I feel like mm-hmm. I am less and less. And I'm like, I can't be the only one that's going through this. And my mom was like, you're not the only one. Your grandmother went through this, a few of your cousins. And I'm looking at her like, why you wouldn't tell me this when the first time I had a miscarriage? Like, why are you telling me this now? And she was like, well, you know, you know, what happens in the family, you know, we really don't talk about it. I said, see, this is why we have this problem. Communication is the key. Talking to your kids is the key because I probably would have processed it different when I had my first miscarriage. If you had told me grandmother, grandma went through this. She apologized and she was like, well, I'm not going to tell you to pray about it, but I'm going to tell you to go back to therapy. I said, okay. I went back to therapy and it took me a long time. I had to go, I had to see a therapist every day because I could not get past that feeling of guilt, shame, angry. I was angry all the time. Like I was angry at my sister. I was angry at my nieces and nephews. I was as angry at everybody. So I had to see a therapist every day because I couldn't grasp why this keep happening to me. So I've seen her about a year and then she told me I have a great doctor that I want to introduce you to, to do a trans abdominal saclage. Transdominal saclage is where they go into your belly, into the side of your stomach, and tie up the top, sew up, uh, infuse the top portion of your cervix. So you won't be able to have a natural birth, but you can have a C-section, but you are able to have a baby because I have an incompetent cervix. She gave me the phone number. She took a call. I already told them your, your story. Just call them and make an appointment. It took me two months to make a phone call. Hmm. And my best friend was like, listen, you lost three beautiful kings, but you might gain a queen. You might gain somebody that is for you. So what you going to do, swallow your pride or you going to sit in a bubble and be angry at the world? So I finally made an appointment. I went to the doctor. She was a black doctor, Dr. Kasher. And she sat down to me and she told me. And she was straight, straight talk. Like she was like the realest lady I ever met in my life. She was like, listen, mm-hmm. I can guarantee you a baby, but I can't guarantee you're going to be a good mom or not. Because you can have a baby, but I don't mean that you're going to be a good mom or not. I was like, okay, okay. 
So she was like, we can do the transdominals class, but you can never have a vaginal birth. I was like, oh, damn. <laughs> so she was like, okay, what do you want to do? Because I can do the surgery. It's not a problem. I said, okay, I'm going to do the surgery. She's like, okay, I got you. I'm, I'm going to make you feel like you're whole because you're broken right now. And then I suggest before we do this therapy, this uh, uh, surgery, you go back to therapy and continue working on you. I said, okay. On February 24th, 2017, that's my best friend's birthday. I got the transdominal saclage done. That was the worst pain I ever felt in my life. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I don't think I want to have a baby because this pain, is it, it was something else. I finally got it done. Finally was excited for a new life. I'm, 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 I'm healing. I'm just so just focused now. Like I'm doing everything I wanted to do. So now where's my excuses now? So in 2018, I found out I was pregnant. And this time, all the doctors was in my corner. Like as soon as I found out I was pregnant, two days later, I was at the high-risk doctor, seeing the high-risk doctor every week for 32 weeks. Every week. Was this the same woman who did your surgery? Uh, no, it was her colleague. Yeah, it was her colleague after, like Dr. Um, Dr. Moshash. He was my doctor. But it was, you know, they in the same group, but she mm-hmm. does only do only does uh, surgery. So mm-hmm. he does GYN. So I seen him and he was amazing. He uh, taught me to listen to my body, listen to the baby. If there's something wrong, let me know. Let's figure it out. And I think I got more reassurance then that I knew that I was going to have a healthy baby. But. Every time I went into the hospital, into the doctor's office, my blood pressure would go up high. And that was only the reason because trauma mm-hmm. kept losing my babies. Like now I'm going to the doctor, you taking my blood pressure. You can imagine my 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 blood pressure was through the roof. Like <laughs> so I end up having preeclampsia because I couldn't grasp that you want to tell me either I'm gonna have a successful pregnancy or you're gonna tell me I'm losing my child. Mm. So I had to have her early at 32 weeks. It was very a very successful pregnancy. And I felt great. I felt good at this time. I felt like I did it. I felt like this is amazing. And now I have a beautiful baby girl. She's a rainbow baby. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Oh, thank you. I, w- I wanted to, to ask you a little bit about the differences in your prenatal care from that fourth pregnancy to the other three, specifically, maybe even that first one. What do you feel like was the difference in the care? What, what caused the difference in the care you received and how supported you felt versus the other times? And so the first two, I was dismissed. I wasn't seen and I wasn't heard. They labeled me as a number that are a patient or a human. They kept dismissing me for my complaint. They kept telling me, um, it's all in my head. That's pregnancy. You're fine. I had one doctor when I was second, my second pregnant, my second pregnancy, he didn't even touch me. He just mm-hmm. walked in the room, looked at my chart, told me everything was okay, and then walked out the room. Like he didn't even take the time to listen to if I had any complaints or had any issues or anything. That was, I think that was the worst experience because I felt like. At that time, I needed to voice my opinion and feel a certain kind of way. And he wasn't there. But the third and the fourth time, I had that community support. I had that 
reassurance that something is is going to happen. And they they listened to me every step of the way. The third pregnancy, yeah, I had an infection, but at least I they caught it in, they didn't caught, catch it in time, but they they reassured me like, okay, these these are the situations that's going on. So what do you want to do? So compared to the first the first two and the last two, the last two was pretty better than the first two. Yeah. Obviously, I'm not a medical professional and you're not either. So you might not be able to answer this question definitively, which is, of course, OK. I personally, after going through two pregnancies with my wife, uh, I'm a big believer in, you know, that kind of mother's intuition. So obviously, that first time you were pregnant, you knew something was wrong before it went wrong. And same thing the second time. And specifically talking about that second pregnancy, I can't help but wonder how much of a difference would it have made if they had followed through or followed up on your complaints earlier or quicker? Do you know if you would have had a chance to save that pregnancy? I believe so. I believe my second pregnancy, I I would have been able, if they had listened to me the first week, the 14th week that I was there, they had just listened to me and did that extra step to give me a transvaginal saclage, mm-hmm. I think I would have been saving my baby or try, try at least, you know, to save the baby, but they didn't, they didn't help me. They didn't, they dismissed me. They overlooked me. They didn't hear me. They didn't see me. So it felt like you just made me feel like I wasn't worth it. The time on it, energy, like even if my insurance wouldn't pay for it, I'd have found a way to pay for it but you didn't even give me that option. Right. And I remember you telling me that you felt through that experience, especially after those first two miscarriages, how alone you felt. And when you sought out that support, it was all people who didn't look like you and that you couldn't relate to exactly. Since you've begun to heal a bit from those experiences, how much have you uncovered that this isn't an uncommon story and that this is not as unique as you thought in that moment? Yeah, um, I have covered a lot. We are three to four times most likely to die at the hand of childbirth. Women of color. Yeah, women of color. Uh, or having complications after childbirth. Um, we are dismissed. We're not seen. We're not heard. And for me, it was all of the above. Now, looking back, I can clearly say that since I'm a woman of color, you are going to listen to my chief complaints you are going to dismiss me because you feel like I can handle the pain. I can handle the unknowing that I might not have the healthy pregnancy. So in that aspect, it's like, okay, well, what should I do? Should I still continue to get pregnant? Because if I still continue to get pregnant, you're still not listening to me. Where, where's the level of care mm-hmm. here? So for my journey now of healing, I have forgave in myself. I didn't forgive anybody else. I forgave myself because I think I was harder on myself Mm -hmm. than I was for anybody else. And that process of healing is rewarding and refreshing to me because I know that I do truly forgive myself. And now I can begin uh, that healing to the the point where I'm open and candid about my situation. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about what you've uncovered as to what some of the, the reasons are that women of color experience such a higher death rate during during labor? Yeah, um, it's the lack of communication, the lack of open um, conversations, mm. the lack of care, depending on, depending on where community you live in or what state you live in. Um, I can say for, for the state of 
New York City, some community hospitals are higher, have a higher rate of moms and babies dying, but then some nonprofit or private hospitals have a lower rate. So it depends on where you live at, what community you, you go to, and where you see fit. Like I had one lady that I talked to, she was in Florida, and she was dismissed at one community hospital, but she got better care at a private hospital. So it just depends on where you go, where you're seeking your your um, your care from, and your provider. If your provider is not relating on your level or making you feel like you're you a part of that treatment of care, you're not gonna get it. It still kind of just shocks me hearing all this because you know going through two pregnancies with my wife and two labors, I I honestly more so than her, I would assume enjoyed those experiences of being in the hospital and delivering the babies, and it's it just is heartbreaking to me that that was largely a part of the color of our skin the color of her skin and how different that could have been if my wife looked more like you and so i'm sorry i have a hard time processing all of that just because it's it's so sad and so frustrating for me i wanted to to talk more about what you're doing now so you you're on your journey of healing from this which on its own sounds immensely difficult and it sounds like you're doing a, a wonderful job and i'm you know really honored that you shared your story with us here but now you've started you know looking for the stories of other women as well and making your documentary life after loss can you tell me more about that project yeah i'm an executive producer of a documentary called life after loss it uh documentary stemming onto my life and many other women of color lives. It started just for a thought and an idea in 2019 that I'd never seen a documentary that spoke to me per se, dealing with the losses of child in my situation and many others, knowing the different complications that it comes with birthing while Black. And this is the main reason why I wanted to push a documentary to tell our story. So you, so we can be seen, so we can be heard, so we can be not dismissed. In telling the story, I had found a lot of great, strong women that experience racism, racism in our healthcare system. And we are the richest country in the world, but our healthcare system is not designed for us. It's not for us. It was not written by us. And this is why we are suffering at the hands of our healthcare system because now we are seeing more death happening before, during, and after childbirth. And our research shows that most likely this crisis is not going to contain itself until we start changing, until we start pushing these policies and changing these policies and pushing these bills and passing the mommy bus that is a bill that was brought to Congress in April for Black Maternal Health Week so we can start talking and having these tough conversations like what we have now. We can start with our healthcare system that will help us birth healthy babies. And that is the key point of our mission in our documentary is protecting our moms and birthing healthy babies. 
And what are some of the some of the changes, some of the progressions that you feel and that you've learned are needed for this cause? What do these bills do and how could they improve the death rate, decrease the death rate of women of color? One, the first one is changing Medicaid, being able to be on Medicaid and get to go to different providers. So if I don't have to go to my community care provider, which is in the community, I go to this this, uh, clinic, which they call it. If I don't have to go there and I can go to a private doctor or I can go to a a better uh, hospital setting with, with that that's not in my community, let's do that. Then there's another uh, key to the bill that the hospitals need to start listing their percentage of successful pregnancies and non-successful pregnancies because you don't know that. So I'm going into the hospital, giving birth to my child, but I don't know your statistics. Like I don't know your status on healthy versus coming home with a box or burying my significant other. That's one thing that needs to be changed. And our doctors need to stop being racist. We can't stop that, but we can also change the perception of if you feel uncomfortable with your doctor, go see another one. If you have a complaint, go over their head and and seek help, seek, seek anything that you could possibly do to birth a healthy child. And if you don't want to do doctors, seek doulas, mm. midwives. These are the people that is actually there for birthing, doulas and midwives. These women are strong. These women been around for decades, you know, during the slavery time, during, you know, the Jim Crow era, during even now, like they are more trained than professional doctors. They come with non-biasy. They come with uh, the strong mindset that they want to make sure that you have a helpful, uh, successful pregnancy and a healthy one, too, because you have to be body, mind and spirit to also produce this healthy child. So they they come in from the beginning, middle and the end. So if you don't want to go to that clinic or that hospital or that, you know, specific doctor, seek out a midwife or doula. You have options. You have choices. And I think that's the main thing for me. I didn't think I had options or choices, but I want these women to know you do. You have options. You have choices. And if you don't like somebody, like you don't like your nails or your hair, go go find somebody else that's going to make sure your health care is being taken care of. Yeah. and. As much as I'm sure your grandmother would, would have wanted to tell their doctors not to be racist in 1996, this might have been a problem for you know, 2020, still a problem. We can't necessarily force our doctors to stop being racist. We can ask them, but we can't rely on that as the only thing to progress this cause. And so I love what you said about do what you can do, which is you can you can change doctors if you don't feel like they're listening to you. You can go to a different hospital. You can seek a doula. You have more options than we're told about. And that's something we we can control. We can help tell more people about these options. Let more women know. Let more women of color know that they have options and they don't have to just feel alone in those moments. And they can have those chances to take some control into their own hands and not feel helpless. Yeah, because, you know, back then I felt hopeless. I felt like I didn't know what where to turn. And I, this is why we're taking this journey and doing a documentary, because we want women to feel like they matter. Because you do matter. Mm-hmm. We're human. We are here to produce healthy babies. We are here to be mothering. We are here to be a nurturer. We take over. We take we wear a lot of hats. So 
if you can't respect who we are, why should we respect who you are? In that aspect that we know that we are here, just see me as who I am. Don't see me as a woman of color, see me as a human. And that's the first thing. See me as a human, birth in another human. So we can put, so we we can stop having this high statistics where we're losing our moms, we're losing our babies. When you think about life after loss and this documentary that you've made, is there a, a specific woman or a specific story that kind of comes up to the front of your mind every time that has really stuck with you through this journey of making the film? Yeah, m- myself and the many women that. I've been talking to and I've been seeing. Um, a lot of these women felt the same way I felt, alone, not heard, not seen. And that resonated to me because I felt the same way. Like, I'm telling you, this is what's happening to me and you're still not listening to me. It's one particular lady, she, 20, 25 years ago, she was pregnant. She told a doctor she was having complication on Friday. Baby shower was Saturday lost the baby on Sunday. Who does that? Like, that is the most, and the baby was nine months. So it wasn't like, she just out of the blue, the thing she had complications. No, she is progressing in her, her ability to produce this child. And her reduced date was Monday. So all these things that she was telling us, it's like, wow. So now you have to actually push your baby out and hold your baby in your arms and then plan a funeral. And she's uh, amazing, like she is strong, like she has the most anointed way about her. She is blessed from the top of her head to the bottom of her feet. And I'm waiting to get, um, I know I'm gonna get to that space where she's at, but I know that could be so difficult because I knew I was there, I was there. So telling the story and, and having these women tell their story is challenging, but I understand. And what is your your goal for this documentary? What's your vision for what you can achieve with this message? Reaching out to many women that we could possibly can. I, I definitely want to reach out to the younger generation because they're about to proceed on their life and planning, having a family plan or trying to do a family plan because I didn't know anything about family plan until I met these ladies now the doulas and the midwives and different doctors to have that option to either, even if you don't want to have a baby, just understanding your body, understanding your choice, understanding that you are, you are yourself, finding yourself worth in knowing that you have options to do whatever you want to do with your body. I would never want somebody to feel like they are obligated to do something they don't want to do. I want these young women and young men to understand that birthing a child is supposed to be a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. It's not supposed to be a horrific thing. It's not supposed to be something that you feel like, oh, this is the end of the world. It's not supposed to be like that. It's supposed to be something beautiful, something natural. But we're still continually having this conversation on the fact that we are being dismissed, we're overlooked, and we're not seen or heard. And I want this documentary to touch somebody in a way where they can relate and start having these tough conversations because these tough conversations will lead into better policies, 
will lead into better procedures, will lead into passing these bills and making sure that we get quality care of healthcare. We deserve that. I don't get what I mean. We deserve quality care. We deserve unit healthful uh, insurance. Like we should go to any doctor we feel like going to and not worry about coming home with a massive bill that we can't afford or feeling like we have to take out a second mortgage just to pay this hospital bill. We should be able to birth while Black. We should be able to go to the doctor when we're sick. We should be able to take out this, this opinion from this doctor. And then if we don't like that opinion, we should be able to go to somebody else. But this documentary is there to have this conversation and to root people to, to start having a dialogue about it. Because it is a tough conversation about death. Grief and loss is the very most com- uh, horrible conversation to have and uncomfortable. And I want people to, to get out that uncomfortable feeling. Because once you get out of that uncomfortable feeling, man, nothing can stop you. Well, thank you again for being so open and vulnerable and sharing your story with us. Speaking to maybe white people like myself who haven't been exposed or were ignorant and didn't understand the racial disparity of our healthcare system, what would you hope that we better understand after hearing your story? That we are human. Hmm. That we are here. Uh, This country was founded on backs of immigrants and slaves and Black people. And we are here. We, you see us. We're not enemies. We're not, you know, poor. We're not mad, angry black women. We're not any of that. We are human. We are here. We want, we, we want to be seen. We want to be heard. And we want to have quality health care. We want to have justice. We want to feel like we are a part of this country, like you say we're supposed to be. You've spoken a fair bit to people who have had similar experiences and some of the things they can do. But I want to ask you to speak to some of these women who may have similar experiences as you or maybe aren't to the point where you are yet and still going through that pain and that loss. What would you want them to hear from your story? What I want them to hear is that grief is hard. Being a mother is hard. Not knowing who you are is hard. But I want them to understand that you are not alone. We see you, we hear you, we embrace you. To seek out resources that you need, to seek out therapy that you need, to seek out a a, a better doctor, to seek out uh, understanding of who you are. Because your voice, your presence is valued. I know I feel valued now, but back then I didn't. As a young kid, looking at my young self and talking to my young self, I wish I knew what I knew now to help her go through this journey. I I wish that I had that open conversation with my mom to understand how she felt back then and have that conversation with my grandmother and have a conversation with my auntie. Like now we have the the opportunity to have these conversations with our, our parents and with our family members and also with our friends and our associates. Let's start having these uncomfortable conversations. Let's start talking to each other and making sure that you're okay. Because I wasn't okay. I can tell you back then I wasn't okay. But I'm okay now because I seeked out help for myself. Well, thank you again for coming on and sharing with us. Best of luck with Life After Loss. And I'm so excited. I hope I get to see it. You will, yes. Yes, we are in post-production right now. So I know you know this. Editing is 
crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's always these back and forth emails, looking at it and just trying to get it together. So this this process is not easy, but we're we're trying to wrap up soon. Well, thanks again for joining us on the podcast and sharing your story. I would love to reconnect after your your film comes out and we can talk about that. Yes, sir. Thank you so much, Alex. I just want to tell you that you are amazing. Thanks for what you're doing. Uh, Thank you for having me on here. I will be coming to Colorado because I'm definitely coming to Colorado to come see you guys. And I appreciate you, my king. Absolutely. Thank you so much. That's so kind of you. All right. Well, thank you for joining me today. Have a great rest of your day. You too, sweetie. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Epics podcast today. I am so excited that you are here and supporting me already. If you believe in what the Epics podcast is doing and want to be a part of supporting this podcast move forward and be a part of our community, please check out our Patreon page where you can become a monthly supporter and gain access to all sorts of great perks. Things like a weekly bonus podcast where every week I'm going to give you my reaction and my feelings and thoughts on the interview that I had on the podcast today. And I will be doing that every single week. You also get free stickers from me. You will get bloopers at the end of the month, which I'm going to tell you is going to be funny right now because I have two small children and this is my first time ever doing a podcast. There's a lot of learning curve involved in that situation, okay? Now, thank you so much for being here and listening. And since you're listening to the very first episodes of the Epics podcast, I'm going to offer you all of that Patreon content for this month for free. All you need to do is come over to my website, epicspodcast.com. Find the link that is offering free bonus content at the top of the screen and wait for it to just come into your email. I'm so excited to be sharing this with you. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast today. Again, if you want to support our Patreon campaign, you can find that on our website as well or go to patreon.com slash epicspod. Hope you have a great day. Thanks for listening. Good.